This is the first episode of a podcast called Connections. And the spirit of these conversations is to really start with a book or a project or uh, an individual and then kind of work out from there to larger and larger audiences, really the School of Humanities, the university community, the Houston community, the national kind of conversation around whatever the book or the, the project's about. So your, your recent book, Sweet Taste of Liberty, uh, A True Story of Slavery and Restitution in America is insanely um, appropriate for that project because it's exactly what you do, right? You, you go back to the 19th century and you uh, work your way um, really across much of America, but also you, you land in Texas at some point. Um, and so it's, it's really kind of a perfect, a perfect book and a perfect story to begin our, our podcast with. So let me shut up and let's hear from you what the book is about, and then we can kind of have a conversation. About sure. It. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. The book tells the story of a woman named Henrietta Wood. And in 1853, about eight years before the Civil War began, she was living as a free woman in Cincinnati, Ohio, when she was kidnapped and lured across the Ohio River into the slave state of Kentucky. And there was a guy there named Zebulon Ward, who was actually a deputy sheriff in Kentucky at the time, who orchestrated her abduction and her enslavement. And so subsequently she was sold by Ward to some slave traders who took her to Mississippi. She ended up there on a cotton plantation. She was taken to Texas uh, during the Civil War. But ultimately, um, and really the reason that I was drawn to her story is the way that it ended because after the Civil War, she, w she was freed by the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. She returned to Cincinnati in 1869 and managed the next year to sue Zebulon Ward in court and win a judgment against him after a long process of litigation. So in 1878, she was awarded $2,500 in restitution for her long ordeal. And I think that's the largest sum that I know of that any U.S. court ever awarded to a formerly enslaved person as restitution. Do we know what that would be today in dollars? Probably close to 60000 or $65,000. Mm -hmm. So it was a significant sum. It actually wasn't as much as she had sued for. She petitioned the court for $20,000, um, both in damages from the abduction and everything she had suffered, but also in lost wages that she could have been earning between 1853 and um, 1869, and so um, she sued for $20,000, and she was awarded a fraction of that, 2500 but it was a substantial amount, and it did, it did make a big difference for her and her family um, in subsequent years. So tell us what happens then. I mean, they, they, they eventually land in Chicago. That's right. So after the victory, Wood moves to Chicago with her son, who had actually been born in Mississippi during her enslavement there. And uh, they settle on the south side of Chicago. And in the 1880s, her son was actually able to purchase a house um, in Hyde Park 
uh, for about uh, $1,200 outright. And we know that that would have been very difficult for any wage earning family to do at the time, much less an African-American household without some kind of other resources or loans from friends or family. And so it's, it's extremely likely that Henrietta Wood's award, the sum of money that she had won a few years before, enabled her son to buy this house. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, real estate, owning a house, having property and wealth of that kind that could then be, you know, passed on or used to secure credit um, was, was very powerful for, for that family. And in fact, he was able to use it to fund his legal education and he became a lawyer in yeah. Chicago. You point out he took out multiple mortgages on that mm -hmm. property and essentially funded a very successful legal career. Absolutely. It made a big difference, you know, rising property values at the time and end of the 19th century in Chicago. So it's really kind of a story of what might have been for African-Americans like Wood and, and her son in that period had they had some some capital um, like the, the kind that she received. Because, you know, of course... Um, and I talk a little bit about in the book the way that um, the nation's retreat from the promises of emancipation and reconstruction left most formerly enslaved people uh, without that kind of capital. And so um, the history that follows really through the 20th century is, is one of a growing racial wealth gap, you know, dis racial disparities of all kinds, not just in the South, but in places like Chicago, too, with housing discrimination and redlining, um, you know, many of the things that contemporary advocates of reparations point to in the 20th century uh, start in Chicago. Um, and Sims, that's that was Wood's son name, I can't remember if I mentioned that, but Sims's ability to start with a house there is sort of the, 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 the what might have been story Right. that runs parallel to the story of what actually did happen to, to the south side of Chicago and to most people um, who who lived there. You know, um, as you know, Earl Lewis has been here for, mm -hmm. for th three days, and mm -hmm. um, Earl just gave a series of the Campbell Lectures and, and talked a lot about race in American history. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, I just to kind of set this in a broader context, if we... You know, if we date 1619 as the entrance of the first mm -hmm. African slave sold in the U.S. to mm -hmm. today, you know, we're looking at a 400-year mm -hmm. history, uh, almost two-thirds of which is built literally on the backs of mm -hmm. enslaved, you know, mm -hmm. human beings. So there's like a bigger, there's like a mm -hmm. bigger story here that mm -hmm. you address in the book as well. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I don't... Honestly, I don't think the typical American citizen is aware. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're vaguely aware of this history mm -hmm. and the background, mm -hmm. but they're not aware of the economic mm. results of slavery. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can honestly say I was not. Mm -hmm. I mean, but once you lay out the case, it's like, right. whoa, you know, you've got... Well, I think, you know, um, Dr. Lewis mentioned the 1619 Project and, you know, similar projects that are now raising more awareness and and bringing this history to life um, and i think what it is making hopefully making people more aware of is the the role that that slavery played in the economic development of of the nation um you know on the eve of the civil war one 
one statistic that's actually pretty familiar to historians of the time, but is starting to to, to gain wider purchase is that um, the if you added up the value, sort of the, the market value of all of the slaves in the United States uh, on the eve of the Civil War, it was worth more than all the factories, banks, and railroads in the country combined. So this was a huge um, source of investment for not just the labor, but actually the 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 value in the bodies of enslaved people who could be sold as wood experienced and was um and so you know the man who enslaved her in mississippi owned uh 700 to 800 people on the eve of the civil war which which was worth maybe a million dollars just in 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 eighteen sixty dollars in the value of his slaves alone so this was a huge capital investment and men like him actually you know poured more money into into buying more people precisely because of their value in the antebellum period the the story also is disturbingly contemporary right i mean it there's a lot of geography in the book i mean you really begin on the river separating ohio and kentucky mm -hmm. that's where this abduction takes place essentially mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there really is a north-south mm -hmm. kind of division here, although it's not absolute. Mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. You're very good at showing how northerners were giving southerners all kinds of um, compromises, essentially, for the sake of the peace. But, mm -hmm. And also how there were people in the south who were very much against what was going on. So mm -hmm. it's not an absolute mm -hmm. distinction, but there's mm -hmm. definitely this north-south thing going on, which, of course, is still with us mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in our, our political life. And you also talk a lot, well, not a, a lot, but a little at the end about this this notion of the Great Migration, mm -hmm. which is another thing I'm mm -hmm. pretty certain most mm -hmm. most Americans do not know about. Mm -hmm. I, I know the the black communities know all about it, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I do not think it's mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. widely known. Can you say something about what these were? Right. So at, at the end, I talk briefly about um, the movement of African Americans from the South to northern cities like Chicago, um, especially in the, the sort of decades between um, the turn of the century and and World War II. Um, but really this migration was, um, in some ways you could think of it as, as an exodus or as a flight from um, a region of the country that was, that was still, um, you know, um, extremely dangerous and um, unjust for formerly enslaved people and their families. And so um, the Great Migration can be seen partly as a response to the resilience of, of white supremacy in, in the South. Um, you know, new systems arose after slavery that, that served as, in some ways, functional replacements for, for slavery. Um, prisons were used to, to entrap freed people and to put them to labor in penitentiaries or on chain gangs and in convict leasing, you know. And a kind of white um, terrorism. White terrorism, you know, lynching and um, and violence that that ultimately led to the disfranchisement of, of African Americans who had received the vote during Reconstruction by 1900. So, you know, people started to uh, look elsewhere, you know, look for where freedom might be found. And they didn't find it in, in the North either, as, uh, you know, as I was referring to 
earlier, you know, it proved places like Chicago proved to be not quite the promised land that they hoped that it would be. Um, but that is a, a, a story that transformed transformed those northern cities and um, culturally, socially, you know, politically, um, the the impacts of that great migration are still being felt today. Can we, you know, when we use a word like lynching, it just mm-hmm. it just kind of goes past us. Mm-hmm. We, we don't mm-hmm. really realize mm-hmm. what that was. Mm-hmm. And my uh, my African American colleagues and students have have taught taught us a lot about lynching. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've seen photos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen postcards that were sent around. Mm-hmm. I've seen black men hanging in trees in front of churches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, can we? Can you give mm-hmm. the listeners a feel for what a lynching really was and why it was mm-hmm. such a powerful form of, of essentially white terrorism? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, as you note, these, these were public uh, executions that were meant to be public spectacles and, you know, were, were treated as such by, um, by white Southerners at the time who came in crowds to participate and, and observe these um, to commercialize them uh, and I think they were intended to be more than um, a single act of, of violence they were meant to, to terrorize whole communities and you know there's there's good scholarship being done now by historians to trace out what was the impact of that kind of trauma um, on the survivors you know on family members of people who who were being um, targeted in these ways. Um, there's a historian, Kadada Williams, working on, uh, has written a book about, about racial violence um, up, up through World War I, um, but also was working on a second book precisely on that, you know, testimonies of people who lived through these um, experiences in their communities and, and the, the long-lasting impacts of that kind of violence. Um, you know, I think we're still still trying to come come to grips with what that means and you know the memorial that's that's now you know been erected in in alabama through the equal justice initiative um i think is is shining a light on that you know they are um systematically um trying to to keep track of places in the south where these lynchings occurs i don't know if you've heard about this this memorial or so it's it's a really it's a really interesting um model for a memorial or museum they have what they've done is they've gone to all the places where a lynching occurred you know small hamlets in the south places like houston and they collect um soil from from those towns or from those places and bring a container of that soil back to the the memorial so if you go you can see a room with you know a wall just covered with these jars of soil and they they issue a challenge to the communities that were impacted and represented on that wall to come and take that soil and and bring it back to their community and commit to building a memorial or some some marker of what happened there and some way of remembering that violence um, so it's it's a very interesting you know way of kind of forcing um, communities today to to reckon with that and decide what are we going to do once it's been discovered that this horrific act of violence happened here. It's so hard to remember things you don't want to remember. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. thinking of Germany, for example, and the Holocaust, <clears throat> and how mm-hmm. 
you know, the Germans have erected really powerful memorials and just mm-hmm. essentially dealing with these horrific acts of mass violence. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we tend to want to remember the the happy stuff or to just simply change the memories, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So this is one, one role where I think a historian can come in and say, no, yeah. you know, essentially. Um, well, I think what one thing the book shows is the, the process of kind of rewriting these stories happened almost immediately at the time, you know. um, You show that with the media reports on Henrietta. Exactly. You know, Zebulon Ward, who I mentioned was the man who she held to account. Only a few years after the the lawsuit, he was in the papers telling a very different story about about what had happened. Um, And his story, he was basically lying, you know, and the story got a lot more play. Um, And I think that's you know, one of the the reasons why I do what I do or historians do what they do is try to um, go back to the sources and see if we can can separate myth from 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 fact. And can we, um, you know, that makes it sound maybe a little too too much about sort of figuring out what are the what are the certainties. You know, there's still interpretation involved, and we still have to to um, sometimes read against the grain to find things and sources that that those sources weren't created to to disclose to Absolutely. us you know but that's that's part of the hard work of of doing historical research is not just finding documents or sources but then and then actually spending time reading them and interpreting them to to uh, especially to try to get to the voices of people who um, have been silenced by later stories and and myths and and the forgetting that you talked about, people like Henrietta Wood, you know, but not um, just the forgetting, the repressing. I mean, the active, right. the active dissimulation. And, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, what makes this such a, one of the many things that makes this such a powerful book is the only piece of writing we really have from Henrietta is a is an X, right? Right. She she was not able to to read or write, so she um, in these these lawsuits the lawsuit that she that she filed she was forced to you know make her legal mark on affidavits which just meant drawing an x um but i think at the same time um she spoke she spoke and she was very yeah. savvy about yeah. um her legal rights and her legal strategy she yep. uh, to me really the the story of the book is is driven by her determination to tell her story um at each step of the way you know after she was abducted within hours of that abduction, she was already telling the story to of what had happened to her, to people she encountered. She told it to some reporters in the, the 1870s who um, published lengthy interviews with her, you know, her story as told in her own words to them. And she told it to her lawyers um, who helped her to, to file this case. So um, the book would not have been possible without her, uh, determination to speak yeah Um, absolutely there's an oral there's a kind of oral component that gets recorded by these these journalists essentially right which of course you know is is and again going back to why the difficulty of 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 recovery you know we know as historians that those sources have problems too they're not perfect sources you know they're the story told to uh in both cases most likely white men who we're, we're, we're recording what she said, but maybe not recording everything she said or, mm-hmm. or you know, sometimes um, emphasizing 
some things more than others. So it's not it's not a perfect or unmediated way of getting to her story, um, but it also is, I think, um, an extraordinary an extraordinarily rare opportunity to hear from a formerly enslaved woman about her experience uh, and telling her story as she would have wanted it to be told or, you know, what were the, the salient points for her to some degree. So can you um, can you tell our listeners a bit about Lafcadio? Uh, sure. I mean, yeah. clearly one of the most colorful characters in the book mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and one of probably the main journalist who ends up communicating her story to a right. broader public. Right. Yeah. So I, I mentioned there were two two newspaper interviews she gave in the 1870s and the first one that i read was published in 1879 by a pseudonymous reporter in a small town ohio newspaper and that interview was actually spread over four issues of this newspaper so it was kind of a a serial Um, but the first installment of it is in an issue of the newspaper that doesn't exist anymore this gets back to the the gaps in the record and things historians can't can't find so when i first read that interview in 2014 i wasn't sure i could could write an entire book about the story because i didn't know about her her life prior to her abduction and i i couldn't tell kind of the the whole arc of of her story but uh, a year later uh, it turns out that there was another interview that she gave with Lafcadio Hearn and he was a, a reporter in Cincinnati, Ohio who in 1876 met Wood and recorded her story. Um, so this was in some ways kind of one of those contingencies or you know fortuitous encounters because Hearn went on to become sort of a literary celebrity in the 19th century in his own right. He He moved to New Orleans and became very famous there as a a writer about Creole culture and and foodways in New Orleans. Later, he moved to Japan, and there, uh, writing under a different name, he became sort of a household name in Japan. He he collected uh, folk tales, Japanese folk tales, and and published them. And so it's been interesting as I've been as I've been traveling the country and talking about the book. Um, when I mention his name, if there's any any uh, anyone in the audience from Japan or familiar with Japan, they immediately recognize that name, mm-hmm. you know, because it's sort of like uh, if you if you wanted to make the comparison to sort of a Mark Twain, you know, in the United States, who's somebody who who published these these folk tales and interesting kind of ghost stories, and actually there's some books that just came out this year. Um, sort of reissuing some of his Japanese tales. But a lot of people aren't aware um, that he started his career as a reporter in Cincinnati after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And you can see some of the elements of his later interests even in that period because he was the kind of reporter who got off the beaten path and he right. was interested in um, ordinary people and he was interested in the stories they told and um, you know he was in some ways he was kind of similar to Edgar Allan Poe or someone like that sort of you know attracted to the um, the morbid the kind of the darker sides of Cincinnati and so he was a little bit of a, a muckraker you know somebody who was exposing um, the the darker sides of, of Cincinnati at the time it was it was already a place of deep 
inequality yeah. between sure. you know the respectable classes and and especially poor African Americans who lived in impoverished neighborhoods along the river and that's where he met Henrietta Wood he he was known to go into those neighborhoods and um, and to record the stories of formerly enslaved people or dock workers um, and paid a lot of attention to their you know their social life and so he's in some ways um, an imperfect but still important ethnographer of that that community at that period of time uh, and it's just uh, kind of one of these chances of history that that he met Henrietta Wood. Although, you know, I think she sees the opportunity, as we said earlier. Sure. It's also, but it's also about <laughs> right. her, right? You know, willingness to share that story and tell it. And she actually met him at a moment in her lawsuit when it was sort of at a pivotal turning point, and it was sort of fading from from the headlines as it were and telling that story to to him helped to put it back in the public eye you know as we talked earlier you know as a historian of religions i'm always always have my eye out for you know the religious elements mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. one of the things that caught my eye in this book and it's not a major theme in the book and so mm -hmm. maybe you haven't thought about it or mm -hmm. maybe pursued it but the, there is this this theme of the heterodox or the the marginal, um, mm -hmm. you know, Lafcadio's writing ghosts or interesting mm -hmm. ghost stories, folklore, seances, mm -hmm. this kind of mm -hmm. other side of American mm -hmm. religious life. Mm -hmm. And the one religious community actually that sticks out in the book as essentially getting it right morally mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. the Quakers, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. who w were always a, a tiny mm -hmm. um a community and often persecuted mm -hmm, both mm -hmm. both in England and in the states and mm -hmm. you don't get into the religious uh practices or identities of a lot of your main characters but mm -hmm. i'm presuming they're fairly traditional you know very denominational christianity kind of stuff mm -hmm. and so you do have this theme of yeah. you know denominational christianity being very supportive of slavery and these mm -hmm. sort of radical heterodox mm -hmm. uh, uh, religious groups trying to stand up and and push back and yeah yeah so I don't know if I'm projecting that or if that's something in in the story but yeah I... no that's that's a great question I mean I, I certainly my um, my first book actually that I wrote before this one was about the abolitionist movement and so um, in that book I talked a lot more about you know the sort of um, ways that religion played a role in in these radical political movements um, and in, in some ways writing this book I had to sort of hold back a little bit yeah. because you know when I got to the parts about abolitionism it would have been really easy for the abolitionist historian in me to let that Go. sort of take over the narrative yeah. and I was really trying hard in the book to keep the narrative moving you know and try to make it the kind of book that academic historians could read but also general readers could could pick up and, and find their way through so yeah. so it's kind of you know when religion comes up it's it's a little bit of a, a pop pops up here and there which is you know uh well i saw probably, it. probably not yeah. good for a religion no, scholar no, fine. and often i actually you know thinking if i were to think critically about the book you know it's it's one thing maybe that could have received more attention you know i, I think it's something that um historians american historians um you know, our colleagues who are who are historians of U.S. religion are constantly calling on us to to weave that 
more into the story instead of just being a sort of jack-in-the-box that pops up you know here and there well again Um, i i actually think this is one of the things that people don't know or they've forgotten that mm -hmm. you know religion was one of the main props of slavery you know it's true you know and at, at the same time it also provided for for enslaved people, you know, a, it's a um, very ambiguous, you know, a resource. Um, in fact, Henrietta Wood, another place that pops up for me is you know, when she's kidnapped. And I mentioned this 1879 interview that she gave that I was missing the first installment of. And so the second installment picks up with the kidnapping having already occurred. And she's already in Kentucky locked in this fourth story room. And the very first line of that interview is, uh, that night I lay awake all night and prayed that the good Lord would deliver me out of my trouble. You know, and to me, that was a very evocative starting point. And it shows that, and there's other evidence of this elsewhere in her interviews, it shows that for her, there was some, some spiritual resources that, that she, um, relied on in these darkest moments, you know, um, it was also interesting to me, you know, you said religion was a prop of slavery, but I think we could we could equally point to capitalism and, and greed and kind of these just it's base always, human motives. It's because, always multiple. You know, um, Zebulon Ward, I kind of was curious what was his denominational affiliation, uh, as it were. And as far as I could tell, uh, he was not the church going type, <laughs> right. which I, it wouldn't surprise you no. after you read the, no. the book. You know, in fact, one of the... Um, one of the characters in the book, um, I can't remember if we've talked about yet that Ward was also, in addition to all the the things that he did in Wood's story, he managed prisons and he was a a keeper of Southern penitentiaries and an architect of those convict leasing systems that we talked about earlier emerging after the Civil War to, to reduce enslaved people or subjugate them again to a kind of kind of bondage one of the prisoners in in the penitentiaries that he ran said that uh money was his religion Mm -hmm. which i think is is probably a a fitting summary let's 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 go there if we can i mean Mm -hmm. one of the things one of the many things i learned from the book was that you know once the civil war began and the southern states began to realize that you know essentially their their time was up you know, for at least legal slavery, Texas became a kind of refuge for slave mm-hmm. owners. They mm-hmm. trans- literally transported their slaves and came mm-hmm. came to Texas to mm-hmm. continue the practice of slavery. Mm-hmm. And I uh, I also know just because I know you, you you've done work for um, you know, there's a mass burial as we know out in mm-hmm. Sugarland mm-hmm. that was probably almost certainly a product of this convict leasing Mm -hmm. that that you're really talking about in the book Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i was very much struck by how the the historiography or the scholarship on the history Mm -hmm. really feeds directly into you know your work Mm -hmm. yeah with the sugarland community and and the houston community around these literal bodies in the ground Mm -hmm. and and how how to struggle with that, mm-hmm. you know, how to, how to recognize that and to, and to yeah. address it. Well, it's, it's another example of, you know, the, the forgetting or the, the gaps in, in collective memory of this period. Um, so these, these graves that were found in, in Sugarland were unearthed during the construction of a school 
um, and there are 95, the remains of 95 people. Um, and so the analysis and the dating of those remains shows that they were African-American uh, victims of convict leasing. And, can you, you know, tell, many, can you tell us what that is? Yeah, well, convict leasing. See, and that's what I was going to say is, you know, a lot of people don't know, no, or, or, no. um, in fact, when I've talked to, to I, people about it, they're sort of I think surprised to hear that this happened. I'll, I'll just yeah. voice the, the assumption I think people are making is mm -hmm. if they're in prison, they have no rights. We can do whatever we want to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, we can work them to death. We can do anything. I mean, I think that's kind of mm -hmm. the cover for what right for this convict leasing well you know i think people need to understand that the law is is not just a um you know a, a settled reality that it's also a it can be a tool it can be an instrument of power uh and certainly when it was controlled at the end of the 19th century by former confederates who you know were intent on making sure that emancipated people did not gain a foothold in 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 the south they were able to to wield the law as a weapon Absolutely. and actually what they did was you know came up with criminal statutes that were designed to be dragnets for um for formerly enslaved people you know uh, an example might be they would they would make a, a a charge of petty larceny, you know, for, for crimes, for, uh, stealing property worth $5 or less would get you, you know, 10, 20 years in the penitentiary. And so like stealing a shirt, yeah, you're, you're in jail for you're, 10 you're years, in jail, you know, or even things like, you know, um, hunting a wild hog that, that, you know, wasn't actually contained on someone's land. But if you, if you killed that in order to feed your family, then, you know, if there was a sheriff around who wanted to to put you in jail, they could find an uh, an excuse to do that. And let's be clear what 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 we're calling larceny, larceny. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. yeah, yeah. What we're calling stealing. Here yes, yes. Was really black people who didn't get paid for years and years of work, and so they would take a shirt or take something small and yeah, land that's in a good jail. Way of thinking about it, you know, yeah. it's kind of the same the same sense of justice that would have had to pursue restitution, you know, in the courts, the people who didn't have that opportunity right. pursued justice in other ways. Um, but what it, what it ultimately meant too, in the, and is not just that they were put to work in the prison, but under the convict leasing system, the state would try to cut costs on their end by leasing the prisoners out to private contractors. And so often these private contractors were former slaveholders themselves who were still running cotton or sugar plantations or or starting new industrial enterprises in, in coal mines or building railroads and they would go to the state and enter these contracts to receive X number of prisoners to come work on their plantation. And so many, you know, African American men and women who had only recently been freed found themselves on cotton plantations or sugar plantations um, under overseers who, you know, had been slaveholders and now had very little accountability to the state, you know. Um, it was if, just slavery in another you name. Know, if one of the prisoners died, then um, the the contractor could just go back to the state and say, you know, under my contract, I'm owed another 
prisoner, so send send another, you know, to this camp. And so that's what people I think need to to see about convict leasing is that it was actually, um, you know, a it was it was a case of un, unaccountable power uh, that was actually licensed by the state in the interest of saving money mm-hmm. on the state's totally end. quote unquote legal. Yeah, yeah. But but a form of slavery nonetheless, and and a means along with the other kinds of racial terrorism we talked about yeah. of of maintaining white supremacy of um, you know and and we talked about these laws, but sometimes you know ruses could be created to just grab people put them to work in these in these labor camps um and so ward the the man that wood sues in the book was an early architect of these kinds of systems he ran prisons in kentucky and tennessee and arkansas ne- never in texas although texas also had uh one of the, the the largest convict leasing systems that was very profitable for other men who were much like ward you know money was their religion um and ward though played a role you know in that in that history so one of the things i hope the book does is gets people to think about the the continuities between those two histories that that there's the story of wood holding him to account for slavery but then there's also the story of of what what came after slavery and it actually made him a fabulously wealthy man by the time he died he would have been a multimillionaire in today's terms just from the systems of convict labor that he had presided over. One of the things that, you know, Earl Lewis lectured about this week was what he calls the first slavery and the second slavery and then mm-hmm. the third slavery. Mm-hmm. And maybe again, just for the sake of the conversation, mm-hmm. can can you define those those three terms? Well, I think he he, you know, meant by the third slavery sort of contemporary human trafficking and um, and he, he he pointed out that this is a, a large problem you know in our contemporary world um, you know traffickers who prey on vulnerable people who are desperate to move to another country in search of another job and they're promised you know wages that will make a huge difference for them then they get there and the trafficker says they're owed you know they owe them more than they could possibly pay working at that wage for multiple years and then they find themselves locked in a kind of a, so a the, debt bondage that you know essentially makes puts them at the disposal so the third slavery is all around us yeah. and we're talking about tens of millions of people in in some kind of forced bondage mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these are the people that show up dead in the pack, back of semis for example mm-hmm, right um, right but they're also all around us mm-hmm. um, the second slavery then is what um I I actually don't remember him. Well, so the first yeah. slave, I the first slavery would would end yeah. with the amendment, right? The and with amendment. the Emancipation okay. Proclamation. So did he did he use that term to talk about like the convict leasing and and those kinds Jim of Crow laws? Jim Crow laws. And, laws. Okay. And yeah. so I was just can can you because this is something you do in the book is mm-hmm. you show how slavery really didn't end with mm-hmm. the Emancipation Proclamation and and the amendment. It really continued in other ways and mm-hmm. on other names. Mm-hmm. And these often are called Jim Crow laws. Right, and and right. again, I don't. I think that's just something we we need to talk yeah, about. Yeah. Well, I think you know one of the one of the abolitionists I wrote about in my first book, a guy named Wendell Phillips, had a quote um, where he said after the, the Civil War that slavery was dead, but the slaveholder remains. And I think that's a um, 
that captures the story of this book too. You know, people like Zebulon Ward, who had been enslavers, you know, prior to emancipation, were still around after emancipation and were devising new means of of exploiting people. Um, so the cast of characters, you know, the systems changed, and there were. I, I think we should pause and say there were significant differences between chattel slavery and and convict leasing. Well, what, you know, that, but what's the cast of characters were the same. So know? what's chattel slavery and what's a Jim Crow law? Yeah. So chattel slavery. I mean, I think um, what's what's critical there is the way that people were commodified and bought and sold. Um, you know, we talked about the capital value of of enslaved people on the eve of the Civil War. Um, and so in the case of the United States, that chattel slavery was also racial slavery, racialized. It was slavery, linked to skin know. color. It was linked to race and it, and it, um, you know, it turned people into, in legal terms, property. You know, they were both people and property in the eyes of the law. Um, and, and so we find all kinds of strange laws on the books about, you know, inheritance how do you how do you decide you know the inheritance you know, of people um the, the debate in in religious terms was whether to baptize whether they were allowed to baptize be baptized because if you yeah. baptize a slave right. this person is a child of god to use the theological language well if this person is a child of god why are we yeah treating him like a cow there's kind know? of a paradox running throughout that you know if you there is a sort of a schizophrenia in in Southern law at the time of, of sometimes treating enslaved people as people, you know, for the purposes, for example, of punishing them for crimes they might commit. Um, and then in other cases, viewing them as, as chattel property. Um, so I think what's one thing that's different about the convict leasing systems is, you know, uh, there people were profiting solely off the labor of of the prisoners you know what they were making what they were cultivating but the the private contractors did not couldn't buy or sell uh the prisoners you know even even though there were exchanges of a kind you know to make that happen there is there is a significant difference there um and a difference too in the involvement of the state in in overseeing this and sort of granting the power over these prisoners to these private citizens. Um, whereas under slavery, you know, a private citizen who owned people was seen in the eyes of the law as kind of the master of, of his property, the master of his domain. I mean, that's one legacy to me of slavery that um, we can see continuing on today, which is the high value that our legal system places on property rights and, and property holders um and puts all kind of obstacles in the way of states that might try to to you know raise revenue raise taxes get at the property a lot of what's baked into um you know our our state our state statutes and the way our state governments are constructed was built in that time in the 19th century to kind of give give property holders in that case slaveholders all kinds of power power over um over other people over other people yeah so what's what's a jim crow law so that's a term that was used to describe um basically segregation laws 
in the that emerged around the turn of the 20th century that uh, you know forbade um, racial mixing in certain spaces um, that disfranchised African Americans either outright through constitutional amendments or through other indirect means like poll taxes or you know white primaries these were these were laws that were designed to uh, ensure that people of African descent remained second class citizens in yeah. in in the United States okay. yeah. so um, let's move out to sort of expand the conversation in the sense of um, you know, I'll just I'll I'll expand it in terms of a a, um, a personal question. Is you know what? Why are you doing this? <laughs> um, and not just why are you doing it, but how do you keep your optimism or how do you keep your spirit up? I mean, this is a devastating uh, story mm -hmm. in many ways. The four hundred year history of racism is horrific. On every level. Um, well, I, you know what's what's more horrifying though to to reckon with it or not to you know and to leave it, as you said, in these kind of shrouded in, in myth. You know that's to me okay a, a worse case. That's a great answer than than to actually do the work of of reckoning with it. So for you, I'm, this is what I'm trying to get at though. Mm -hmm. So for you scholarship historical scholarship historical consciousness this mm -hmm. reckoning with the past has a kind of um again i'm a historian of religions mm -hmm. it, it has a kind of redemptive feature to it um or not i mean i'm it's a, really a question yeah, um, yeah is it is it is it a reckoning with the past so that we can achieve some sense of social justice is it um You know why? Re I, I guess yeah. I'm, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to yeah. be the naive reader here. Why <laughs> uh, reckon with the past? Why not let the past go? And of course, mm -hmm. I don't believe that. But I think that's a question that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is often articulated. Yeah. Well, I think it. I think it frames the question as though we we had a choice when, in fact, okay, history is all around us, yep. and and whether we realize it or not, yep, we're telling ourselves stories about the past that are influencing how we see our world and what we see as as possible futures um and so we are we're constantly not just in the classroom or or through books but through movies through through um monuments you know that we might see on our public landscape we're surrounded by history elections so, political maps exactly i mean you can't read this book and not think about red and blue states i mean it's just so obvious yeah. so it's not as though we we have just a, a sort of abstract choice of whether or not to engage with the past it's more a question of how we do that and what's a what's a good way to do it or what's better ways of doing it um and worse ways of doing it so let me ask you this then let, let me ask you another kind of question about the humanities and i'll you know begin with a something i often say about books um so for me, a book like this, but a lot of works of scholarship, are, it's sort of a, um, it's sort of an apocalypse frozen into two covers. 
In other words, it'll it'll end your naivete, but it'll also begin a whole new world. Mm. But mm-hmm. it has to be activated by a reader. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. silent. It's just sitting mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And the the way I joke about this in terms of my own experience of publishing books is, you know, every time I publish a book, I honestly feel like the world has fundamentally changed hmm. and that there should be fireworks in the sky and a national holiday or something. And instead, of course, absolutely nothing happens. You know, I say it's like it's like throwing a Kleenex off the Grand Canyon and waiting for an echo. Just some bird takes it and shits on it or builds a nest or something, and that's that's the end of it. So there's this, you know, as intellectuals, I think we we truly believe that what we do matters. And of course, I believe that. Mm-hmm. I sincerely mm-hmm. believe that. And yet, what we do is encoded in books that are easily mm-hmm. ignored or easily set aside. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, how how do we as scholars in the humanities, how do we how do we communicate to broader and broader publics why this scholarship is important Mm -hmm. why if it if it's not read it should be talked about Mm -hmm. Mm to again to broader and broader publics i i think we're very good at talking to each other we 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 know the lingo we know how to do that we're good at talking to our students in a classroom Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but when it comes to these broader conversations we we retreat and I understand why we retreat. I I really do. But can you just can you yeah. reflect on that? Well, you know, I, I I think it's a good question. And certainly, as I was writing this book, was was thinking precisely about how to reach a more general reader or interest a more general reader because, um, you know, a lot of the books we write are are solidly researched, take years of our lives to write, you know, and they're they're aimed partly at our, at our colleagues, you know, who help us to build knowledge around that topic, which I think is true of our colleagues in, in the sciences or, or any field that there is a certain level of, um, of scholarship that is intended to be read by other scholars. Right. That's just the way that, that basic knowledge is produced and, yeah. and science advances. And so there's nothing wrong with, with that. And we need that. And this book relies on a lot of scholarship that, that was written in that way, you know, um, for other scholars to to push the ball forward and develop develop our knowledge, so that's that needs to continue. Um, but there are there is a need too for humanities to kind of reach out to the broader public, since since history and humanities is everywhere. Um, to me, with this book, the way into that was this was a story. You know, this was yeah. a very compelling to me, and I hope to others narrative it has a lot of drama it has a lot of you know turning points and i think that's um you know we're sort of hardwired to to story as human beings um it's the way we 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 think about ourselves we narrate our lives to ourselves and there's a lot of great scholarship before this book you know about slavery and convict leasing and you know reparation struggles but I think one one thing that, you know, journalists like in the 1619 Project or other examples we could point to understand is the importance of delivering that through a story, you know, um, that draws people in and makes people on some basic level just want to know what happens next, you know, right. and, and and how I think, you know, 
the humanities um, is is really good too at dealing with just the human condition and the human conundrums we all face. You know, I'm in this moment. I have decisions to make. I have to make sense of my world. We all can relate to that. And so um, a story can, can put you hopefully in sort of the shoes of somebody who's facing the same kinds of dilemmas and and trying to, to deal with it in the context of their time and, and in their world. So for me, you know, storytelling is one way. It's not the only way. You know, I think things like the, the lynching memorial that we talked about earlier is another powerful way. Um, but storytelling is one way of of getting outside the walls of the academy and, and drawing people in. What, one of the things I want to talk about in, through the podcast mm-hmm. is, and this will sound nerdy, but I, you'll, you'll get it instantly, is, you know, this, this balancing of sameness and difference, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, in the humanities, we talk about difference primarily, we don't we don't mm-hmm. talk about sameness and mm-hmm. some of us I think would even deny sameness. Mm-hmm. And yet the reason this is such a powerful story is mm-hmm. we recognize in Henrietta mm-hmm. ourselves mm-hmm. she's a human being mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. us, mm-hmm. like the reader. Mm-hmm. So but her experience is nothing like mine mm-hmm. or yours mm-hmm. or, or right. I hope I hope almost any of mm-hmm. ours. So there's it's the story is driven by almost total difference. And yet we only can understand it because of this shared mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sameness mm-hmm. that underlies it all. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's something we don't do so well, actually. Mm-hmm. But you do beautifully in the book. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, that is that is a challenge. You know, I think because we don't want to collapse the the distance between no. between that time and ours, and and assume, you know, um, we always work with our students, you know, to try to challenge them to think about actors in the past as not just versions of them. versions of themselves but yeah. you know um, but at the same time there is some some relation there you know yeah. I think that's uh, otherwise how could we do history one of the differences between um, the humanities and the sciences is you know uh, you can't ask a rock how it feels <laughs> right. uh, but you can talk to people you know and you right. and and even if they're long dead you can still um you can still encounter them and and inquire of them um, by reading by reading their words. So there is a there is a dialogic kind of dimension to, to everything we do that's made possible because we're studying human beings. Do you you know one of the things I struggle with is you know there's a big push uh, in the academy to make more and more what we do accessible to broader publics. And I mm-hmm. suppose this podcast is part of that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the, um, and I'll say truths, but a lot of the conclusions or truths in the humanities, particularly in the study of religion, actually are not communicable in a in a way mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that will be embraced by the public. In other words, they're difficult truths. Sure. They're difficult things to hear. Yeah. Um, and I, I sometimes feel like our colleagues in uh, the natural sciences, they're, they're doing the easy stuff. You know, when they, mm-hmm. when they create a new piece of technology or they come up with a, a, a new proof mm-hmm. of something, it's, it's, it's easy to understand why it's a good thing mm-hmm. to know. Mm-hmm. But when mm-hmm. we come up with our truths, they're mm-hmm. often 
very difficult things for people to accept you know, on an emotional mm-hmm. or familial mm-hmm. or, or a personal level mm-hmm. even. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, this is a good example of that. Yeah. This is a story that's powerful, but that many people will yeah. not want to hear. So well, yeah. how, do you, how, do you, yeah. how do you think about that? As a, I mean, I'm sure there's parallel cases, you know, climate scientists, yes, for example, absolutely. You know, coming up with some Evolutionary unpopular. biologists, yeah. Um, so I guess I don't see it as, as a stark, maybe quite as stark as you, as you, as you drew it. Um, because I think you know, if I picked up if I picked up a climate science journal myself, I wouldn't understand right. personally half of what I was reading there. Right. But I would trust that my my colleagues do, and and are, and are, and I think similarly, you know, a lot of times the media takes a you know a religion journal or or something that has a lot of jargon and says no one can understand this. Well, that's just the way that you know scholarship. So let unfolds, me broaden the question because yeah. well taken. I, I accept your <laughs> I accept your nuancing of my exaggerated uh, framing. So so, but what do we do then mm-hmm. with the public rejection of expertise? Uh, that's 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 a big question, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Now I feel like I'm in the hot seat. No, <laughs> I don't mean to put you because I'm yeah. in the hot seat too. I think yeah. we're all in the hot seat on this one and. Uh-huh. To me, it's a it's a real burning question, and right. I don't have an answer. I think it's something that certainly we're at, we're at a time where we do seem to have to defend first principles, you know, and go back to um, the idea of, of evidence and and the painstaking work of of fact checking and and uh, you know, and I think that's actually a place where we can find a lot of common cause with our colleagues on the other side of campus, you know, we're all kind of in this same boat, uh, as it were, of defending the value of, of this kind of knowledge production. Um, And I I think it is, it is a, it is a, um, you know, you can, on, on some days, it feels like a crisis, on some days, it just feels like the job, you know, that's just the challenge that we face. Um, But I agree with you that that's, you know, on my mind these days. Yeah. Well, listen, that's that's all. That's those were my responses to the book, I, which of no, course it's a great I loved. Conversation, enjoyed enjoyed I, talking. I just I'm so happy you could join us, and this is a good first beginning. And I, I hope the conversation, you know, as we move to other partners and colleagues and projects, yeah, it sort of it sort of deepens. And yeah. I mean, this is already deep, but well, it'll well, it'll you've, get. You've got at least one uh, future listener. Okay, <laughs> there we go. We'll start with one. Okay. Well, thank you, Caleb. Thank it's, you. It's been a joy. Thanks, Jeff. All right.